If you'll stand with me this morning, we're going to turn to the verse we read last week, Matthew chapter 4, and be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, the account of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert or the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Matthew writes this, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Can anybody say, well, of course he was. (laughs) Duh. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You may be seated. Historian Shelby Foote tells of a soldier who was wounded at the Battle of Shiloh in the American Civil War. And he was wounded to the extent that his commanding officer said, you need to go to the rear of the battle so that you can take care of yourself, so that you can get away from the fighting and tend to your wounds. But the fighting was so fierce and the whole of the battleground was so entrenched with battle that the wounded soldier finally came back to his officer and said, Captain, give me a gun. This fight ain't got no rear. There's no end. There's no rest. There's no stopping. There's no... Sorry about that. There's no place where I can go where there is peace. And church, as Kevin said so well this morning, we are in a spiritual battle and it ain't got no rear. There's no neutral ground. Satan doesn't call truce or give terms of peace. Yes, the war has been decidedly won by Christ, by His death and resurrection. But make no mistake, the battle continues to rage on and it will do so until you are absent from the body and present with the Lord. That means that in this life, there's no rear. That is why we must realize who the true enemy is, namely Satan, And then prepare for battle and be ready for battle at all times by putting on our spiritual armor, the armor of God. That is also why we must, we must, we must walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. 
Whether we do that or not, whether we walk by the Spirit, will determine whether or not we have spiritual victories over the constant barrage of temptations that Satan hurls our way, or whether we will lose the battles. And thankfully, we do not have a Lord and Savior who cannot sympathize with us. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet he walked by the Spirit while on earth. And because he did that, he was victorious in the battles against temptation, and he was without sin. And my friends, did you know That because of your faith in Jesus Christ, as he has sent the promise of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, to dwell in you, to live in you, that every single believer has the power of the Holy Spirit within them, the same power that Christ used while he walked on earth. The power by which we can resist evil and thwart Satan's attempts in our life. As we read here in Matthew chapter 4 last week, we began looking at this passage where Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Matthew 4, 1 through 11 shows us the victory which Christ had over the tremendously tempting offers of Satan. Don't look at this or overlook what was going on here. This was hard. This was truly tempting for Jesus. We're going to talk in just a little bit why it was so tempting. And yet Jesus was able to resist temptation. And today we will see more specifically how he did it. Now, of course, he did it because he walked by whom? The Holy Spirit, that's right. That's how he did it. We'll look more specifically at what the Holy Spirit did to lead him to victory. But, suffice to say for now, he walked by the Spirit which allowed him to be victorious. And since he, Jesus, is our example, we must follow him in his example. And his example was walking by the Spirit. So my friends, today... We too must walk by the Spirit. Last week we not only determined that Jesus did in fact walk by the Spirit, but then we began discussing five aspects of the Holy Spirit's leading, what it looks like in practice. And last week we looked at what walking by the Spirit doesn't guarantee you. Three things that doesn't guarantee you. It doesn't guarantee easy times in easy places. It doesn't guarantee the absence of temptation. And it doesn't guarantee earthly comforts and accommodations. And we just have to be okay with that this morning. We just have to submit to that and be okay with that. Because it doesn't. Doesn't guarantee these temporal things. But there are some things which walking by the Spirit does guarantee us. 
In the battle against Satan, which is the battle for integrity, the battle for effective ministry, the battle for your personal best, your personal good. And the battle for the souls of the lost around us. And now in those battles, walking by the Spirit promises some pretty amazing things that are worth much more and much more endearing and much more valuable than all of the things that it doesn't guarantee. And so let us continue this journey today to see the last two aspects of the Holy Spirit's leading. What it does guarantee. First, or this would be our fourth point, the Holy Spirit's leading guarantees help in time of need. We see this in verses 3 through 10. Now, I just want to give you something to start with here to find out where Jesus was. Look at verse 2. Although I said this is going to be 3 through 10, I want you to go back to verse 2 for just a second. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? He was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. That's 10 days longer than a month. Do you realize how long that is to go without food? I've done one of those 24-hour fasts. I've even done a 48-hour fast. And I was struggling at the end of the 48 hours. But that was just 40 hours. Can you imagine 40 days without food? He was weak. He was literally starving. His body was beginning to consume itself, to eat the the muscles and tissues of his body. His body was screaming for food. Feed me, feed me, feed me. I'm going to die. In fact, most likely he was in the process of dying at that point. He was starving to death. This isn't just his stomach growling and, man, I haven't eaten in a couple hours. I really, I really need to grab something. This was, Jesus, you could die right now if you don't eat. This was at a very weak and desperate moment for Jesus. Satan knew exactly when to attack. He found the the weakest and most desperate moment in the life of Christ. And he attacked him right at that point. My friends, this was not an easy temptation to overcome. Have you ever been hungry? Really hungry? How, How cranky do you get when you're hungry? You get cranky. You get short. You get irritable. And you're vulnerable to sin. You're vulnerable to lash out. You're vulnerable to do things that you wouldn't normally do. That's where Jesus was. And so something had to happen to intervene. Something had to come alive in Jesus for his flesh to overcome the temptation. Because what's the first temptation that Satan throws at him? You're hungry? Then let's eat. Say those stones turn into bread and you can be fed. You can satisfy the desires of your body at this moment. Now, I want you to understand this is where we get to the specific. 
Yes, it was by the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus won the victory over this battle as Satan was tempting him. But the the specific is this. How did the Holy Spirit guide him to have victory? Or what did he use in Christ's life? What was it? It was the Word of God, right? Verse 3, if you are the Son of God, he's questioning his identity, his purpose, his reputation. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then Jesus, he doesn't rely on his own knowledge. He doesn't rely on his own wit. He doesn't rely on his own strength. He goes right to the word of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word. And so using the word of God in our life, the Holy Spirit does three things. First, he sustains our life. The word of God is sustenance to our life. Jesus was tempted to place his faith for life and provision in something else besides God and his word. To provide for himself instead of going to God to provide for him. The Holy Spirit had led him out to fast had led him out to do this very thing. And now Satan is tempting him to cut short what the Holy Spirit has led him to do. Jesus, you've made it 40 days and 40 nights. You've done a great job. You know, next God won't care about those other couple hours for this last day. It's not a big deal. I mean, God knows you've got to eat. He knows you've got to eat to live. God doesn't want you to be hungry. He doesn't want you to be miserable. So just, just cut it short a little bit. Just mess up a little bit. It's not a big deal. But Jesus' response is, it's his word. It's his will. It's his guidance. It's his leadership that is life. And if I do anything other than that, then I miss out on life. This is life. It's not just words on a page. This is the words of our Father to us. The words of our God to tell us how to live that we might find life. That we might live in success. And and by success I mean victory over sin. Victory in the kingdom. Drawing others to him. Fulfilling the great commission. This is life. Do you live by it over everything else? So the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to sustain our life. Secondly, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to restrain our pride and self-centered recklessness. Let's look at the second temptation here that Satan throws at Jesus Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, once again, if you really are the son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written. And then Satan quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12 here. Now, do you see what Satan does? He uses God's word. Okay, Jesus, if we're gonna, if we're gonna make this about God's word, if, we, if you're gonna keep going to God's word, then let me throw some of it back at you. Now, we know that Satan distorts it. He takes it out of context. He uses it 
in an unholy, perverted way. But it's still the Word of God, correct? He's still using the Word of God. He's just using it incorrectly. But how easy it, it, how easy it is to be deceived, to be led astray when it's God's Word coming at us. Well, if it says it, then it must be true. And how many times do you hear people, do you hear organizations, do you hear cults taking the Word of God and twisting it and perverting it and making it say what they want it to say to get you to do what they want you to do? This is why we must study the Word. Just reading it is probably not enough. Now, it's a great start because I believe it saturates you. It gets in there. It's a, it's a double-edged sword that pierces you to the very center and core of who you are. So if you, if you at least read it, it's going to get in there. It's going to unsettle some things. But we've got to understand what the original writer was saying to the original readers. We have to understand the context. We have to understand what it means and what it says. So that it can't be used to lead us astray. Now listen to what Satan was saying here to Jesus. He takes them to, it says, the pinnacle of the temple. Now there's several places that they could have meant by this. It's not specific. The very top of the temple, the, the temple sorry, had spikes on it. So it wouldn't have been very easy to stand on. So most people think, most scholars think that that's probably not where they went to the actual roof of the temple. They think they went to one of the porticos, the porches of the temple. And there's several to choose from. But one good suggestion, and, and I think this may very well be where Satan took Jesus, was to the part called Solomon's porch. Now... The temple was built on Mount Moriah. And so on a mountain, you know, if you go on one side, you can go, you know, it might be 50 feet to the ground, depending on how it's built. But on the back side, if you're built on a cliff, it goes all the way to the valley and it's a much further fall. And if it was at Solomon's porch that Satan took Jesus up to, then it was on the side of that cliff. And it was 700 feet from the platform of the porch down to the bottom of the valley. That is quite a fall. Josephus, the Jewish historian, historian said that it was dizzying to look over the edge of that porch. So it wasn't a short fall. It was a long fall. But let me tell you what Satan is doing here. Satan realized that Jesus wanted to be recognized as the Savior. Satan knew at least to an extent what Jesus' mission was. He came to be King. He came to be Savior. He came to be the Messiah. And Satan said, Jesus, listen, you may have a plan and it may take a long time, but let me tell you a very quick way to get the attention you're looking for. Let's put on a spectacle. Let's put on a show. Let's leave people with no question about who you are, if you really are the Son of God. If you jump off this 700-foot drop, and all of a sudden God's angels come and sweep you up and, and, and catch you in your fall and lift you up and set you back on the ground, people will be convinced. Man, your job will be done. Everyone will know. 
Your way is hard. Your way is long. This is easy, simple, and short. And how easy it would have been for Jesus to say, you know, you're right, Satan. I mean, I know you're the devil and everything, but that's a great idea. Man, using your head, devil. Yeah, you're right. If I jump off here, all the, the backlash and all the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the religious leaders coming back against me, all that will be over. The people will know I'm him. The people will follow me. There'd be no crucifixion. That's a great idea, Satan. But Jesus knew the will of his father. Man, pride could have so easily welled up in Jesus. Yeah, you're right. I am the son of God. I don't have to be killed. I don't have to go through all this hard stuff. I deserve to be recognized as the Messiah right now. Or the self-centeredness of not wanting it to hurt, not wanting it to be hard, not wanting to give up the pleasures and the, the accommodations and the comfort of this life. But Satan used the word of God to protect Jesus from all of that. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test This is not my father's will. This is not his way. This is not the way he meant it to be. So I won't take the shortcut. I won't do it the easy way. Because if it's not God's will, it's always the wrong way. Through many years and a difficult road, Jesus would accomplish his messianic work. And he would again sit at the right hand of the father. But here Satan tempted Jesus to expedite the process. It would, however, require that God's plan be overstepped and overlooked. And in that way, Jesus would fail, would utterly fail if he didn't do it God's way. My friends, God's way is not just the best way, it's the perfect way. And if we don't do it his way, then we sin, plain and simple. And I believe our God is pretty smart. Smarter than Satan, really. And that the way he tells me to do it is going to be the best way. It's going to be the right way. It's going to be the most blessed way. And it's going to be the way that builds the kingdom the most. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to constrain our tendency toward idolatry. What is the temptation here? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, we think that's silly because Jesus was God, right? He was the son of God. He was God in flesh. He created everything that the devil was just showing him. Who are you to think you can give this to me? But we also know that at this moment and at this moment right now that he is the prince of this present darkness. He is the prince of this world. Even though the leash that he is on is a very short one and a very controlled one by God himself, he still has room to reign in this world at this current time. 
And so while Jesus knew ultimately he would reign, at that moment, this was a very real thing that the devil could offer. I control the hearts of these people. Isn't that what happened at the crucifixion? Remember it tells us that Satan put it in their heart to crucify Jesus. And so they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. He had pull over those who did not follow God. And so as Satan was saying, all of these I will give to you, it was a very real promise. Listen, Jesus, if you'll bow down to me, once again, I will help you fulfill your mission right now. I think Satan knew very well who Jesus was. He wouldn't have been tempting him here if he didn't. Satan knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But I think that Satan assumed that Jesus was there to take a physical possession of the land, to set up his reign right then. And being a poor carpenter without an army, it seemed very difficult for Jesus to be able to accomplish this. And since Satan had current dominion over the world, it was very plausible for him to make such an offer. And to know that it would be very tempting for Jesus. Once again, this is the easy way, the simple way. There's no pain and suffering in this way, or so it would seem. Now, I don't think he knew the full plans of God. I don't think he understood that Jesus would be the suffering servant before he would become the conquering king. I don't think Satan understood the way of the cross. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got the people to yell, crucify him. If he knew that it would be the nail in his own coffin, he wouldn't have done it. I want us to see something else here, because this is fascinating. Up until now, what Satan is asking Jesus to do, at least directly, was not sin. Is it a sin by in and of itself to turn a stone into bread? Well, no, of course not. There's nothing in the Bible that says, do not turn stones into bread. At least my Bible doesn't say that. Is it a sin to, to jump off a hill and expect angels to protect you? Maybe, but it doesn't say it in the Bible. I mean, the heart behind it is where the issue is, of course. But there's nothing inherently evil about expecting God to protect you and to help you and to save you and to take care of you. In fact, that's biblical, right? But all of a sudden, Satan turns his tactics. Before it was, it it could seem harmless on the outside, even though Jesus knew the intention of the law. But all of a sudden, Satan is asking to do Jesus to do something that is directly against the law of God. Bow down and worship me. I mean, that's the first and second of the Ten Commandments, right? And Jesus quotes it. He goes to Deuteronomy 6.13. And he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Now, of course, the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. That's where we first get them. But this is how it words it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, I want you to see something else here because this is much more fierce on Jesus' part. Because what does he say before he quotes that? Then Jesus said to him, verse 10, what? Be gone. Now, it doesn't, put it here in our scripture because punctuation was not in the original text, but I think you could add about three exclamation marks to that. 
Get out of here, Satan. You've crossed the line. You're asking me to do something that you know I cannot do. And as tempting as it is to, 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 to take the shortcut to fulfill my mission, to have all the lands follow and worship me. Be gone, Satan. Be gone. For I can only worship my Father in heaven. Because Jesus knew something, folks, that we need to see this morning. That if we try to do things any other way than the way that God tells us to do them according to his will, by his word, we are bowing down to Satan. Do you understand that this morning? You can only serve two masters. Or there's only two masters to serve. You can't serve both. And if you're not serving one, then you're serving the other. Satan had been saying all along, bow down to me. He had masked it and framed it differently. But that's what he was saying all along. Bow down to me. Say no to God. Say yes to me. In summation, the Holy Spirit protected Jesus from sinning. He protected him from the attacks of Satan. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Using the word of God in our life, he protects us from our own sinful nature and from the attacks of Satan. So what's that mean, friends? We must know the word of God. We must know it well. We must study it. We must throw ourselves into it. David said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, O God. It was the word of God that protected him from sin, that protected him from stepping outside of God's will for his life. And it's no different for us. Do you know the word of God? And what's cool about it is when we know it, now we are called to memorize verses, we're called to meditate on it, to know it well. But, you know, if I asked you right now to quote all the verses you've ever studied, to quote all the verses you've ever memorized, you'd probably say, well, I can quote some, but I can't do them all because some of them I'm kind of rusty on, some of them I've forgotten. But I believe there is something supernatural that happens at the moment of testing, at the moment of temptation, where the Holy Spirit brings to mind the Word of God. The Word of God that you need for that moment. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? I believe with all my heart that it was at this moment that the Holy Spirit, it wasn't just Jesus quoting some random verse, it was the Holy Spirit bringing these verses to mind in Jesus' heart. And he was able to defend, to battle, to put up his sword to deflect the lashes of Satan. Sometime later in Jesus' ministry, he could say the words recorded in Mark thirteen eleven with absolute confidence. Remember what he said there? He said, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He knew that to be true because he'd experienced it himself right at this moment in the desert as Satan was tempting him. The Holy Spirit was bringing the word of God to Jesus' mind. Now he had to have known it. He had to be in it. He had to have studied it. But then the Holy Spirit supernaturally used it in his life to protect him. 
The Holy Spirit's, Spirit's leading guarantees help in time of need. God's help in time of need. Let me just quote to you Hebrews four fourteen through 16 as we end this point. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, listen to this, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is what the word of God promises. God doesn't owe it to us, but he's promised it. And because he's promised it, he will do it because God does not break his promises. That's what the Holy Spirit guarantees as you follow him. He will help you in all of your need. The last aspect of the Holy Spirit's leading The Holy Spirit's leading guarantees God's rest, peace, and ministry in your life. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, if if we go to Luke's account of this experience in Jesus' life, in verse 13 he says, that Satan intended to return at an opportune time. So this guarantee does not mean that we should let our guard down. There are times of respite, times of rest, times where God tends to us and ministers to us. So in that way, yes, we said at the beginning there's no rear, but sometimes he, he does give us some rest. He does give us some, some peace in the midst of conflict. But as long as we're in on this earth, as long as we live in these bodies, the devil will return. Temptation will return. The battle will return. So it doesn't mean that we can let down our guard completely. Yes, God can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding and transcends all of your circumstances. He can give you rest. And he will, my friends, as you follow the Holy Spirit, he will. He will give you rest. He will give you peace. He will tenderly draw you near to him as you draw near to him. He will minister to your wounds, your hurts, your discouragements, your weakness, your thorns in the flesh, even your shortcomings when you fall or when you fail to walk by the Holy Spirit. In fact, walking by the Spirit guarantees God's rest peace, and ministry in your life, both in the absence and the presence of temptation. So even as we're in the midst of this, even when we're in the midst of the battle, God still promises these things. When we trust Him, the Father comes to us with the full economy of His power and mercy and offers us rest and provision, love and strength, hope and joy, no matter what our circumstances are. I don't believe the father waited till after Jesus was done before he sent his angel. Well, well, before he was present with him. Yes, he waited till after to send his angels. But I believe the whole time through, the father was there with his son by his Holy Spirit. His help was always there. 
And this is the great truth of walking by the Spirit, church. Though it is our responsibility to trust God through Christ, to keep ourselves in the Word and to follow His Spirit, it is God Himself by His Spirit who chooses to reside in us and who leads us by His own choosing. You didn't make Him come, so you can't make Him leave. Amen? His leading may be denied, but for believers, the leading is always there. The power is always there. The love and encouragement are always there. His presence is always there. It is by His strength that we follow and that we find victory. His presence is not the outcome of our victory over temptation. It is the very cause for it. It is the precursor to our obedience. God, by His Spirit, is our constant companion in the midst of trial. Now, I'm getting kind of worked up, and you may feel like I'm yelling at you right now, but this is really good news. This is the really good stuff. The God of the universe, the God who spoke and, and things came into being, the God who created you, the God who is holy and cannot accept you because of His sin, sent His Son to die for you so that He could be with you always and forever. In my devotional reading this morning, I was reading out of Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening devotions. And in commenting on Hebrews 13.5, where God is quoted from Joshua chapter 1 saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want you to listen to Spurgeon's words. He says this, Be thou bold to believe, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In this promise, God gives to his people everything. I will never leave thee. Then no attribute of God can cease to be engaged for us. Is he mighty? He will show himself strong on the behalf of them that trust him. Is he love? Then with loving kindness will he have mercy upon us. Whatever attributes may compose the character of deity, every one of them, to its fullest extent, shall be engaged on our side. If he is for you, who can be against you? He is our shepherd. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He never leaves us. We never want. His word leads us in paths of righteousness. Walk by the Spirit. What it guarantees, what it offers, what it yields for us is far greater than anything we could have doing it on our own. Choosing the flesh. Choosing to to momentarily satisfy this in this world. When the riches of heaven await and God holds them out for us to take through his son, Jesus. Let me end with this story this morning. It's said that Cyrus, the great emperor, the founder of the Persian Empire, once had captured a prince and his family. And as the prince and the family were brought before Cyrus, the king, Cyrus looked at the prince and said, what would you give me? For me to let you go. And the prince replied, I'll give you half of everything I own. And King Cyrus continued, what would you give me if I were to release your children? He said, I would give you everything. 
I own. And what would you give me to release your wife? King, I would give you myself if you would let her go. And moved by the devotion of this man to his wife and his children, King Cyrus let the whole family go. And as they were walking home, the prince looked to his wife and said, I bet you thought King Cyrus was pretty handsome. And she said, I didn't notice. I couldn't take my eyes off of you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. My friends, there is one, one who has given himself for you. And his splendor and his beauty is beyond anything else there is. And why, why we ever look to anything else, why we look to the world and the fleeting pleasures that it offers, why we look to Satan and the promises that he makes, why we ever take our eyes off of such a Savior. I will never understand, and yet I do it. We do it. Jesus is the one who gave himself up for you and for me. He loves you. Satan doesn't love you. Satan could care less about you. He only wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. No matter what he offers, no matter what he promises, that is his aim. Jesus, of course, on the other hand, desires to give you life and life more abundantly. He wants to give you rest, peace, and the riches of his love. So why would we fall for the lies of Satan? Why would we take our eyes off such a beautiful Savior to steal glances of such an unseemly world? Yes, sin satisfies, but only long enough to entangle you and drag you down with it. In the flesh, we struggle, we fail, we settle for mud pies in the slums. But in the spirit, we are more than conquerors. We go from victory to victory, from glory to unfading glory, and we find everlasting, never-ending satisfaction for our souls. My friends, today before you are two options. Will you live in the flesh or in the spirit? Will you run to Jesus, the one who is willing to give himself for you, that you might find redemption through faith in him? Or will you turn to the world, your flesh, to Satan himself, who only wants to destroy you? You have two options, but there's only one right decision. If you choose your flesh, you choose defeat. If you choose Jesus, you choose victory, abundant life, and eternal joy. And so I beg you this morning, choose Jesus. Choose to walk by the Spirit. Father, awaken hearts this morning. Open eyes. Shake lives so that they would see the options for what they are and realize the only wonderful, beautiful choice there is. Jesus. To walk in Him, by Him, through Him in faith as He leads us by His Holy Spirit. That is my prayer today, that your people would choose life. In Jesus' name, amen.
as Greg leads us this morning, would you stand and would you respond to God? And if you've never chosen Jesus, if you've never come to Him in faith, if you know that only death and destruction await you, it can all be changed right now in this moment. You can go from death to life simply by trusting in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you can come to Him this morning. So whether you stay there in your seat, whether you come forward, I beg you, I plead with you to make that decision today. Don't wait. We don't know what's going to happen even in the next breath. So choose now and live.